Hello. In this special interview, I speak with Rebecca Hardy, Practice Director at Kidwell's Law in Hereford, and Jeremy Aldous-Fountain, GDPR Practitioner for Hexad Information Security Services, before their excellent workshop on the forthcoming General Data Protection Regulation to help me navigate its very muddy waters. This is quite a long interview, but it's really good and full of lots of useful information. Enjoy. So we're at Growth Hub in Hereford, and um, I've been lucky enough to get an interview with uh, two people running a, uh, uh, the GDPR workshop later today. I've sort of borrowed some of their time to come and talk to me and give me uh, a bit more of a broad overview on what it means for businesses next year. Hi, I'm Rebecca Hardy, Practice Director from Kidwell's Law Solicitors, based in Hereford and in Worcester. I'm an employment lawyer by trade, um, but I'm also, as I said, practice director, so I'm responsible for all of the day-to-day operations Mm -hmm. of the firm. Everything from compliance firm to recruitment, uh, from the operational logistics side of the business, business development, marketing accounts, so lots of of different hats (laughs) uh, being worn. Um, And so looking at the GDPR for me, I kind of wear two hats again for that from the legal point of view, but also from the practical implementation. Um, I started looking at GDPR a couple of months ago, working with Jeremy, um, who's who's here with me, and he will introduce himself very shortly. And I just thought, actually, I need to understand this from a business leader as well as from a legal perspective. Mm. Um, and that's the approach that I um, I take to it. And you mentioned Jeremy, who's uh, with us today as well. Yeah, Jeremy Aldous-Fountain. I'm the founder and managing director of Hexad Information Security Services Limited, essentially a UK government-accredited cybersecurity and information assurance business. Um, we set that up focused on the vital UK SME sector just on two years ago. Um, for my sins, I'm a GDPR practitioner um, with the GASC organization in Germany. Mm. What does that mean? Essentially, I do work on auditing and advisory work to companies around GDPR compliance. Um, I'm also a, an assessor and auditor for GCHQ in regards to their GDPR readiness programs um, and I'm working closely with Kidwells um, for their very important client base. Lovely, thank you. Um, so we've banded around this uh, term GDPR. Would you would you mind explaining that for a little bit for our listeners? What that means, what the impact is for businesses? Sure. So GDPR is a new regulation that's been brought in uh, across Europe. So regardless of where you are in Europe, each member state are going to have to comply with this regulation. It's not a question of when we comply and it being incorporated into national law it is mandatory, uh, which all regulations are. And put simply, it's about keeping data safe. The Data Protection Act that we operate under in the UK is now considerably out of date. Mm. Uh, technology has, has grown considerably uh, over the last 10, 15 years. Cybercrime uh, is, is massively increasing. I think it's the fastest area of, of crime growing at the moment. And so we need some regulations out there to help keep all of our data safe. Uh, and me, from a personal point of view, of course, that's what I want. Yeah. Um, and also from a, a business point of view, I want to make sure that I'm keeping all of my clients' data safe. So most of this is, is good practice anyway, but it's not mandated by law at the moment, mm-hmm. which as of May next year, it will be. So it's understanding what data you hold, if you're legally required to hold it and permitted to hold it, what you're going to do with that data, how long you can keep that data for, and how you're going to keep it safe in the IT setup uh, and structure that you work in in your business. Um, at the core of the, of the Act is uh, the fundamental rights of the individual. 
which for the first time are going to be enshrined in a common set of regulations mm. across the, the EU. So that any company or any organization using that information, that personally identifiable information, uh, is going to be working to a common framework. Now within that, at the legal level, there's plenty of jurisprudence that will break out in the course of next year. That said, the rights of the individual are now enshrined for the first time. Um, and that is a two-way street. So companies and organizations need to be very aware of what their obligations are, because they're quite dis distinct. And at the same time, the responsibility they hold for protecting that information while they're using it for a legal purpose. Yeah, it's something we've noticed when, when uh, my, the team and I have been looking into this and what, what we need to do and what we need to understand about, that it feels that it's very much protecting the individual and it's going quite heavy on organizations who um, are misusing data or collecting information they don't need yeah. um, and certainly making them responsible for that, whereas at the moment I don't feel they are. There's, uh, you know, you can you hear about these instances like Yahoo. Um, I can't remember when they had a data breach, um, but they said uh, or claimed there was only uh, a small amount of records lost, and actually it's come out it's it's a lot more like four billion sure. uh, more recently. Um, and so that could happen to a lot of businesses. But this this law is really looking to say, well, to reduce the impact of that, one we can get consent, but also reduce what you actually need to collect in the first place. I think it's it's so necessary with anybody's details being leaked, being hacked, being accidentally left on the train. You know, at the moment, businesses aren't accountable for that or, or not as accountable as they should be because the legislation is out of date. And so I think that it's, it's definitely something that businesses should be taking seriously, regardless of whether the GDPR was coming in next year or not. Mm. And I think that it's something that... All businesses need to look at their IT setup specifically. I'm shocked the amount of companies that I deal with that don't have satisfactory antivirus in place um, and kind of malware. It, it's not my area at all, but I've learned a lot in my role over the last couple of years with regards to IT setup of our business and then also of clients and just the amount of data that's out there that can be accessed. Yeah. It's scary. And, and the world that we live in now with portable devices, using phones, laptops, tablets away from the office it's so easy to lose people's data. I mean, for us, we work in a heavily regulated industry anyway uh, with regards to the legal sector, and so we have to be very careful. But if we lost a file, if our server got hacked and all of our clients' information got stolen um, and, and whatever happened with it, it would be absolutely devastating for, for our clients. And that's the approach we're taking is, actually, can we tighten up anything that we're doing and are we holding all of the data that we need to hold? Mm. And exactly like you just said, Ben, we found throughout our process, we're holding so much data, which is clogging up our server, which we don't need. Yeah. And instead of expanding that server and you know spending money on that, look at the data and what we're doing with it to make sure we're working effectively, we're speaking to the right people, uh, and we're not spending money and wasting time marketing to individuals that actually you know, we have no purpose or, or reason to market to. So for us, it's been a great exercise just to look at what we hold. And so from a practical business point of view, yeah, great. And we've been able to now put a positive spin on it by educating our clients, holding these seminars like we're doing later today, workshops, working closely with Jeremy. So it's it's a massive positive for us. Albeit a couple of months ago, I didn't want to um, embrace the legislation that's, that's coming in mm -hmm. um, because I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to market all of our clients. I'm not going to be able to send campaigns because I'm not going to get consent from these individuals because 
why would people be looking at their emails to then take the time to respond yeah. back to me saying, yeah. oh, yes, please market me. I'm going to lose everybody. That's, actually, even, that's an interesting question. I'll, I'll come back to that. Because, sure, definitely. We, we are certainly going to um, potentially see some impact and fallout from that. Uh, and I'm hoping that we've built um, a good enough reason for, for people to want that information that they're quite willing to sign up. But yeah, we'll come back to that. Definitely. Um, Jeremy, perhaps uh, do you have any sort of uh, example cases where things have gone wrong? Um, and maybe they've uh, mitigated it well or that this law would actually help in the future if that were in place? I think probably the, the, the greatest impact I'm seeing as I get into certain specific um, compliance programs is if companies begin to look at just the simple principles around which the entire act is, mm. is constructed and they focus everything around what they need to do within their organisation, technically and organisationally, to mitigate the potential of a breach. Because mm -hmm. sadly, we are in an environment which is a question of when, not if, you will be breached. Yeah. Um, today, we're not going to go into the fine detail of, of a breach, but sufficient to say it's going to happen. And therefore, at that point, is are you as an organization robust enough to not only ensure the security and integrity of the people's information you hold and your obligations, mm -hmm but also your shareholders and your yep. clients. Um, one of the big areas I'm, I'm finding is the specified, explicit, and legitimate purposes, principle two. And when I challenge organizations and, and picking up on what Rebecca said about the, the we're drowning in information, um, the fact remains a lot of companies are collecting data that, quite frankly, is exposing them mm -hmm. to the potential events that are going to happen when a breach occurs. Yeah. So they need to apply a rigor about what do we actually need to collect and get that consent from the, the individual to execute the legitimate purpose that we've informed them about. And there are obligations that are cast and are mandatory. Um, but at the same time, if, if there's one message to carry away for companies, think about it as if it is your information mm -hmm. at all points. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it because that will drive your thinking. And we'll talk a, probably a little bit later about the privacy by design principles within this. Um, you asked for examples. Um, sadly, I'm yet to come across, even under the existing 1998 Data Protection Act, where companies that have been breached have demonstrated they have the necessary policies and, and principles in place. Um, there's a lot of lip service given. Yeah. And I think the existing DPA Act um, has reached its final point of, of call, albeit that the Information and Commissioner's Office, who is the supervisory authority, mm -hmm. um, is beginning to warm to her task of issuing fines as we move towards next. Yes, we'll start to hear more about that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I recommend people go to the ICO website for what I refer to as the Hall of Shame. <laughs> um, there's any number of examples of where individuals and organizations have been taken under the existing Act if one then thinks about the fines that are going to be coming out next year, potentially they will be eye-watering if those companies had tripped off mm. 26th of May next year. Yeah. And do you think um, it's going to affect all... I mean, it, the law will affect all businesses, but from the ICO um, who's regulating it, are they going to be jumping on people straight away, large and small, or do you think they're really going to start at the top and move down? How do you think it's going to impact people straight away if they haven't done anything? 
individual straight away. Yeah, so I'm just thinking about smaller businesses, very small businesses, maybe a couple of people working in there, um, uh, or, or husband and wife working together. You know, not not these large organisations like Yahoo and Microsoft and Apple and so mm. on, but really much smaller businesses who this is really on the back burner for them. Uh, I don't think it should be, but it's not something that they uh, are likely to get round to sorting everything out before the date the law comes to pass. So I'm wondering if that's going to be a really big problem for them or it's it's something that... I think from... With Kidwells, there's 27 members of staff um, across the years, probably five to 7,000 clients. So we're not talking about a vast company. Mm. We're bigger than your, your small kind of couple of people um, being employed by a company. But for us, it's looking at if there was a breach next year, what would the ICO want to see? So I'm kind of wearing that hat when I'm speaking with staff and I'm training my staff. And then when I'm speaking with clients, I'm setting out to them, the ICO will want to see these documents as an absolute minimum and not just documents that are locked away in a filing cabinet. Proof that you're living by these documents so that you've trained staff. As at May next year, your staff need to understand what these regulations are. Uh, You need to make sure you have in place a number of policies, looking at your information security setup, website policies, which I think probably we're coming on to. You need to look at what data you hold and where you've got that then recorded. You need to look at the risks of holding such data. So I think the ICA will want to see that you've taken a practical approach to this and that you've mitigated as much as you possibly can the risk of a data breach. And Mm. if you can't demonstrate any of that, then, of course, the fines are going to be significant for you, regardless of size. Yeah, if, you're not, because, if you've not even made an effort to yeah, really go through and document. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, size doesn't matter when it comes to making an effort to to keep your business safe mm. because it's all proportionate to what business you have and how large it is. So I think, of course, the ICO want to work with companies and they want to be reasonable with their approach, but the fines are there. And they, w- they will be fining companies uh, if they can't demonstrate any mitigation or any attempt to comply mm. with this. And it's going to take several months for companies to change the way that they work. Absolutely. And so people need to start looking at this now as opposed to the beginning of May next year because they just won't have enough time. Uh, and if a breach happens on the 1st of June, the ICA will look at that in the same way as they would look at it the 1st of June 2019. Yeah. So organisations need to leave enough time to look at how they're working, to review the data that they've got, to make sure that legally they're required uh, and, and allowed to to keep it, and then how they're keeping it safe and how moving forwards they're going to have practical steps to to reach all of these, uh, all of this criteria moving forwards. So like you were saying, Jeremy, that uh, breaches are going to happen. It's It's just a question of when, so really not. Um, it's not a question of whatever size business, but um, if you're small, you think you can get away with this. You've got to be looking into this and knowing how you deal with it and monitor this information as from now, really, as soon as you can. Absolutely right. And, and you've also got the, the existence of, and the emergence of third parties who are now managing information and data on a global scale. Mm-hmm. I'm talking here the cloud service vendors, yeah. your call centers, the payroll and HR uh, providers who companies, particularly small uh, and medium enterprises are using more and more. Um, they also have obligations, mm. and and there are very finely detailed um, elements that define what those roles are. 
um, and I know a lot of work that Rebecca is doing now with, with Kidwells is, is looking at those current service agreements and are they fit for purpose? Uh, because as of the 25th of May, based on the work I do when I do audit and assessment work, um, many of them are not. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that it's groundbreaking work, but it is stuff that needs to be done that is of a compliance and risk benefit that should be noted at board level, which, by the way, is now also a mandatory requirement. Mm -hmm. um, so that the whole issue of data protection is a top-down discussion as opposed to being a, a technical fix. Yes, or, or, or the ICO just insisting you have uh, one responsible person who's, who's mentioned on the, on the documents that you file with them. But apart from that, it's just a tick box exercise, it seems. Um, it's interesting you say about third parties. I mean, that's something we use a lot. Yes. Um, we're a remote organization. So we use a product called Basecamp. So a lot of our communication will be in that. Um, a lot of Customers will communicate and share freely their details with us on there, even though sometimes with passwords say, no, don't don't put anything sensitive on here. Sure. Um, there's even an instance with uh, Basecamp where there's an area where we cannot delete anything. So to have a proof of audit trail of what we have talked about, the client and, and, and us, we can actually delete information in there. So I'm interested to hear how you might think whether that's something that we could go on with or it's something we'd have to change or we'd have to say to Basecamp, look, this is not going to be possible for your customers in Europe to use this if they cannot delete any information. Um, and uh, another example are hosting companies. So, for example, we use a lot of third-party services. We lease their services for either a virtual server or yeah. shared service arrangements, but it's all managed by their infrastructure and we'll copy files onto it. So I'm interested in whose responsibility really is it if there is a breach, data loss, that sort of thing. Sorry, quite big questions really, but <laughs> that's, that's what's that's sort of floating through our mind. And our, our customers will certainly ask us this as well. Sure. I think from my point of view, you have to, so you as the controller of that information, you have to look at what organisations or platforms you're engaging with that would then be processing that mm -hmm. information. So anything that you outsource, if there's any data transferring to that company, and we have to remember it doesn't matter where that company is based. They could be based in the States. But if they're dealing with uh, data that is of an individual within Europe um, or European company, then they are going to be bound by these regulations as well. So you need to look at all of these third parties that you're dealing with to make sure that they're prepared for GDPR, yeah. first of all to make sure that any data that's transferring to them, that they're processing, is going to be kept safe. Because if there's a breach there end, you're going to be responsible for it as the controller of that data. But you also have to be speaking with those individuals, the data subjects, to make sure that they're aware of any information that will be passing over to a third party. And that's why organisations are going to have to leave enough time to look at how they're communi communicating with those data subjects what's in their terms of business, mm -hmm. service agreements with their clients um, or with the third parties to make sure that all bases are covered. And if it's for marketing purposes, to be making sure that actually you have all of this information and that it's all transparent to the individual so they're aware of it, to make sure that you are allowed to process, uh, to, to transfer this information mm -hmm. for the processor to then process. And that's why terms and conditions are just vital you need to be having a look at it we over the last couple of months have contacted all of our third parties so we outsource our IT for example we've had to speak to them to find out what are they doing to to com comply 
And if your IT company aren't doing anything yet about complying with GDPR, that's going to cause some alarm bells. Um, and you'd want to make sure that they're aware of it, if not work together, to make sure that those terms of business between two parties reflect exactly what you need to be um, demonstrating. And so the responsibilities, if there was a problem, the responsibilities would fall to you anyway, even if it's the IT company that had um, the breach to come via them of your data, the responsibility would fall on Kidwell's law in that case? You'd need to look at what you had in place and say, yeah, as a controller of that data, it's your data. Mm. So you you will be responsible for that. But you need to be able to demonstrate that you've worked with that processor to keep everything safe and that you are aware of how that processor is going to operate and keep that data safe. So it could be if the processor has gone through um, reasonable steps to secure everything um, and you've gone through, or or maybe they they haven't gone through reasonable steps, they've done some things, but you've gone through reasonable steps and they've told you they've done this. They've they've brought everything up to speed, they've put encryption in place or whatever it is to protect the data, but then they haven't done those things. I assume that it might become a bit more of their responsibility because you've documented that you've gone through this process, you, you've done it to the best of your knowledge and you've contacted everyone and you, you know what's going on basically with the data, but they haven't done that. And it falls. I guess it, it's, it's interesting for us because we do deal with other people's data. Yeah, of course. Um, one example is email lists. Yes. So we use, um, uh, it could either be a client account of MailChimp or we have our own um, one called uh, Campaign Monitor. And so we will manage the data on their behalf. And so I'm interested, I, I assume then we're a processor of data. So they may be the data controller still, but yeah. we're a processor of data. So we are still part of that chain. Yes. You are on the classic journey mm. of identifying what data you do hold. Mm. Um, and many organizations can, you know, as you rightly said, be a controller and a processor at the same time. And we can also have op- there's areas there that need to be resolved as, as you go down that path yeah. of information being shared across an organization interdepartmentally. Right, yeah, of uh, course. Because there are also elements that would fall in line with being able to get access to that data based on the legal requirement mm-hmm. and consent and so on. Um, but coming back to the question of the processor, they are liable for the data security of that processing under your instructions as a controller. So you need to make sure that within your contracts, your legal contracts with your third party, your processor, that that is reflected. Yeah. Um, The term joint and severally comes into mind. As far as the Information Commissioner's Office is concerned, they will look at it as one entity that starts with the controller. You can have any number of third parties managing that data for you, that information for you, but they'll be only interested in looking at the controller. Mm how you manage your environment, I would suggest it's very good time and, and effort spent engaging with, with professionals who can come in and give you advice around mm-hmm. that, that space. Because each organization will have slightly different nuances around how they manage their information. Yeah, um, It's identifying that initially that allows you to mitigate. Going back to your, uh, you were talking about email marketing and not being able to market to people. And this is something that we're going to, find with lots of customers that where we're, we're helping them go through this process from a marketing point of view, not a legal point of view necessarily, although sure. it, it's good to understand that, is we put out an email and currently we collect email addresses from customers or people who've requested a quote and they go onto an email list. 
We also collect emails from people who have subscribed online, so they've requested it. We don't buy any other lists. We don't collect any other data. We don't say, hey, I met someone networking. I'm going to pop them in the list too. It's only people who have at least communicated with us. Mm-hmm. And under the current law, that's, that's totally fine. Um, a, I guess the first question is, under GDPR, is that still okay if we have their consent? And I guess the woolly one for me is when it comes to being a customer and be, having um, currently a, a right to communicate w- with them because to transact that sale and uh, for other information relating to that sale afterwards, which our information hopefully is, and if they've requested to be on there. So I, I guess the first question is, um, how will that continue under GDPR? Is there anything different that we need to do to document how we treat, uh, how we tell the customer that we're going to use their, um, take their email and, and broadcast email to them? Do we have to opt them in to begin with and say, hey, that's great that you've become a customer. Thanks for buying from us. Um, would you like to receive an, an email newsletter? Or we're able to send that first email newsletter and then say, but you can cancel it if you want to. How, how It's a really difficult thing to think about, but what, what, do you, what would you say the guidelines are around that? I think from from my point of view that you've you've given a lot a lot of different examples mm-hmm. then in your in your question. If it is uh, you are holding data for a client that you've entered into a contract for, I, I would assume let's let's assume this is for us, or, okay. or a client could think it from their point of view if they're, if they're sure. Remaining. So I think the organisation that's holding your data they have to seek consent from you to mm-hmm. hold that data. And it has to be expressed consent. So, no, you can't opt people in. They have to um, be giving you express consent to be held on your marketing database, for example. You would need to be setting out to them the reason why you want to hold their data, what data you hold, how you're going to keep it safe and what you're going to do with it. Mm -hmm. And then you need to be making sure that that data is then kept up to date. So for us, we are having to check on a annual basis that all of the data we hold for each individual is accurate. Mm. And all in, all organizations will need to be doing that at least once a year. Mm. If you have a regulatory requirement to keep data, then of course that would override uh, the, the GDPR, such as ourselves, we're heavily regulated. If it's that you want to maintain a database to continue marketing to individuals, you need to be speaking with them now to be setting out what do you want to be marketing to them for. It's not enough to be saying, we want to keep your data. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. you've got to be quite no. specific about what you'd like to talk to them about, how you're going to use that. Okay. So in, in regards to a customer, it would be a good, good idea either reissuing um, and getting consent now for, for that communication. Definitely. And also if um, if you've got a customer onboarding process or terms and conditions as part of that, I assume having something which is clear and not hidden away to say, can we speak to you about other products that you might like? Exactly right. In your initial terms and conditions, mm. letter of engagement, whatever document you may use, you need to be setting out in there what data you will hold for how long yeah. and for what reason. So review the documents that you already have in place update them ahead of next year Mm. and that's a practical step i'm all for looking at practical easy wins to comply with this as at next year and there's no reason why you can't start doing that now Mm. because come may next year you will have clear documentation providing that you've keep kept it filed um, and evidenced somewhere that you can demonstrate that you've got this consent 
for this reason, for these services, and you're going to keep it for X amount of time. And they've been informed of this in this document, and here's their express consent. Right. If you take it also back to the to the rights of the data subject, the rights of the individual, mm. um, companies within the, uh, the articles of the regulation, it expressly places a responsibility on the controller. Um, and that responsibility is you must facilitate the exercise of data subject rights. And those rights are, for instance, to be forgotten. Mm. Um, I do not wish to use your service anymore. At that point, you need to identify all the information that that individual has contacted your company about. And you need to gather that up and demonstrate that technically and organizationally, you have complied with their request. Um, requests can be withdrawn at any time. Mm. Um, so I'd no longer wish to use your service or I wish to adjust the type of service you, you offer me. Companies must have in place procedures and processes and training of their staff to facilitate that. Yeah. Because you are then bound by certain timelines. Right. Um, so a data access request, for instance, um, you typically have 30 days in which to comply. Um, now, gathering that information up can be very difficult can, in, yeah. in the world today. Um, but again, there's processes and mechanisms in place, and we do a lot of work in, in, in that space with clients. There was an interesting question that came out of that when we think, because we thought through a lot of these things, and let's say uh, a customer requested that, but maybe we hadn't finished a project yet. We're midway through a project, and there was some contention, so we needed some evidence of what we were talking about that we might use in court later to prove that they needed to pay for something, but if they then request the data is removed... Do they have the right to get that removed? I, I guess, does this is this where it comes into the, the into our terms and conditions and how if you're going to enter into working with a project with us, is there something else that would contradict that? And it's for me, it starts getting a little bit muddy and confusing as to some things sure. are straightforward like marketing lists, but yeah. there are some areas when you're working with a client and you need to maintain some information um, that it becomes a tricky. There's a number of uh, legal grounds that are set out in the regulations, consent being one of them, um, but performing a contract and compliance with legal obligations is also another ground mm. for processing data. So if you have entered into a contract, first of all, right. in your contractual documentation, you need to set out that this data will be kept, providing that it is needed to yes, be kept to perform the contract. Uh, if there is a dispute, that dispute, contractual dispute, would be dealt with in the normal way. But if they made a request for you to um, delete all of their information under their, their right to be forgotten, actually the contractual provisions would override that. Yeah, okay. Providing that you could demonstrate a clear contract was that in need, place. And that you needed that and information. And that you needed that data. Yeah. That, yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, these are very specific questions. It's sure. just these little things come up. Um, so a few other things we had on here. Um, how to evidence consent, we sort of talked about that. Um, I assume that it, you need to store that information somewhere. So, Yeah, um, absolutely. And is, is there a way to store that accurately to record um, when it was done to have proof that you got their consent at this date and time? You need to be able to prove when it was when the consent was received to ensure that it was received ahead of May. Yeah, next because year. you could falsify that information. So could, Jeremy's sorry, go on, Jeremy. Yeah, no, absolutely right. You know, consent must be given the time that the data is initially collected. Mm. Okay, that's important. Um, yeah. And therefore, as an auditor, I look at, at email timelines. 
any digital correspondence quite easy to identify. Mm. But if there is a period of time between collecting and notifying and or receiving consent, and you have managed that information or processed that information in the meantime, you're in breach. Right. Yeah. You have to get consent first before you can action the information mm. from a processing point of view. Um, again, internally, that's training, that's developing people's awareness that the model has changed from your, your traditional operating posture. Um, but again, it's starting with small bites and building through. Um, it's going to take a lot of companies down down the road successfully. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it sounds like general good hygiene, uh, good process, very simple. We're, we're getting the terms of uh, the contract or how we're going to work together up front before we do anything. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a very, if you can move, I mean, some companies might find it a struggle to do that, but if you can do that, it's a very progressive way of working. You know, we're getting all the terms and conditions out up front, we're talking about them, we're making sure you know how we're going to work internally, data-wise and, and with the team. So it's actually something that we should be doing already, really, anyway, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, just a couple more questions. So, oh, just coming back to the email list again, this does come up a lot. Um, I think it's probably worth, in terms of getting permission, really trying to demonstrate that you've got a good quality content that you're going to send them, that it's actually going to be useful, and that they're going to get something good out of it, and it's not just going to be another sales email with a discount code. It's actually going to be useful information or something that they particularly want. And telling about people about this upfront, maybe on the website when they're signing up, showing the email and the content they're going to get can actually help encourage people to do this. Definitely. I'm, I might at that point challenge... The, the, the basis on which you're collecting that data. Remember, mm -hmm. there must be a legitimate purpose yes. for collecting it. Um, and just because a marketing department wishes to go out and offer a, a discount code is, is something of the past. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely, no, I agree. So aligning your policies and, and procedures around that also becomes an important facet of, of looking at where your, your existing model stands. Mm -hmm. Um, because we, we spoke briefly about privacy by design uh, as one of the mandated elements of the act. Yeah, so talk more about that. That's what you mentioned well, earlier. Privacy by design essentially is to think, at its, at its core, is about organizations and people thinking about the rights of the individual, that personally identifiable information. Mm. How are you building in your requirements under the act into every project. So if one introduces new technology as an, as an example, have you built in from the design stage how you're going to protect that information, that underlying information? It also applies to your existing information. Mm -hmm. So irrespective of what you hold today, identifying what you hold and the risks that it has against the coming act will strengthen where you stand in, in relation to a breach event. Um, building that into a thinking pattern among management and, op and operational teams um, is a good discipline. I would suggest at this point there are examples where I've come across that is, has been very loose in its interpretation, mm -hmm. if not, well, nigh, not even existent. Um, but it will also, and you touched on it, uh, enable companies that do take that on board as, as a mantra uh, to position themselves from a rights of the individual perspective. Yeah. So from a brand point of view, you're moving towards a more consumer-orientated model. We protect your rights. We believe in this fundamentally. And it's not just a lip service discussion or a box tick discussion. 
Yeah, and I think it's important. I mean, there's there's a lot of email communication that we get, which I'm pretty confident the people putting it out wouldn't want to receive themselves. And I think it's you know, we would consider that spam. It's something that you you may have opted to commun- have communication from that company, but you didn't want to receive that type of information because it's boring, too frequent, it's irrelevant. Um, and I think thinking, as you've said, and really thinking about your customer and the individual and what they would like to receive and almost putting yourself in that position is just good general business practice anyway. Absolutely. Do I have any other questions? Um, we talked a little bit about breach, um, evidencing con- consent. Um Oh, yeah, just so we'll just finish off on this before we go to some advice. Um, so with websites, we've had the cookie law came in oh, uh, a little while ago. I can't remember exactly when it was, but it came in and, and we have to basically uh, give people the right to not have cookies while they're, while they're browsing. Or you can um, get implied consent based on that if they continue browsing on your website, that they give consent. Um, but you obviously take a bit more risk under your own wing on that one. Um, this is going to tighten things up a little bit more, perhaps, because there's a lot of information being collected. Um, Google obviously collecting information. It doesn't have names in, but it does have IP addresses, and they are collecting unique sessions moving around the internet. Um, even websites like WordPress will have cookies that they, they store on there. Um, and then you've got some great software nowadays where it can really record the, the mouse moves and the sessions, and you can see what people type into forms. It's amazing from a it study, mm-hmm. but could become a liability in terms of collecting information. What sort of um, advice would you would you give on that front? I'll pass over to Jeremy um, in in just a second, but I think it's important for everyone to remember that IP addresses, cookies, they they form part of this personal personally identifiable information. Mm. So yeah, you're exactly right in saying that the GDPR will have a massive impact on this. It's looking at the way that your website works. Your, that you're being completely open and transparent in your website policies, in your terms, conditions online to set out to users um, and also any data that you're gathering that you are not using the historic tick box exercise. You're specifically stating to individuals what data they are giving to you and going back to all of the, the fundamentals, what you're going to use it for, mm. how you're going to, to keep it safe. Um, I think you know the points you've covered there. I'll, I'll just pick you up on your. The industry has this implied consent model. Mm. Um, the Act does away with that. Um, you cannot operate in a, an implied consent framework anymore. Yeah. Um, and that would then look back again. Think of privacy by design. How do we design the customer journey to still enable us to present services and product? in a way that ensures that the integrity of that individual's data is maintained adequately. Mm-hmm. And there are various technical ways of doing it. Pseudonymization is one of them, etc. So it's, it's looking at that landscape of data that you currently hold and the business processes you have around it and adapting them. We're not saying you can't do it, but you need to ensure that you've built in the necessary checks and balances as you go down that market. I think from my point of view, it would be for organizations, especially business leaders, senior management team, IT, marketing, getting a good understanding as to what the GDPR regulations are, what it means Mm. for their business and getting some practical advice as to how they make it work for them, whether that's attending seminars or, or workshops, looking online, but just being very careful that you are not being scared away 
from this. Um, I think that people are taking lots of different approaches to compliance, but it's got to be a practical approach. Yeah, It's got to make it work for the business. So I think understand what it is and then look at what data you're holding and how you are going to clean up that data and how you're going to meet the steps of compliance. Um, and then look at all of the documents that you currently have in place to then find out what you're missing um, and, and what else you need to have in place. I can provide, if, if this is okay. Um, yeah, I we've can got some show notes so we can put links to various references in there. Perfect, yeah. And we can set out to individuals, you know, documents that they need to have in place mm-hmm. so they can start thinking about those or if they need assistance. And of course, Jeremy and I would be more than happy to assist we're doing a lot, and I'm probably seeing some of Jeremy's thunder here, but doing a lot of work with clients where we would go in and we would carry out a data audit with them mm. to find out, to help them understand what data they hold and then carry out a gap analysis from that. So where the gaps are in the organisation, what documents they have in place and what areas they need to tighten up. And I think that's got to be the first you know, main steps that people take. You're absolutely right. Get to know your data. So, you know, look at your governance frameworks. That's one of the mandated requirements of the Act. If you don't have one, invest in one. Um, there are a number of off-the-shelf type models available. Um, but your data flow audit is a very it's a critical element. Mm. Um, understand what you've got and then mitigate the potential risk of, of that underlying personal information. And I think if you're listening to this, it's we haven't really even scratch the skin of of this um, this massive piece of, of, of law that's coming in next year. Hopefully it's given a bit of an overview, but there is so much to it. And I think that people need to get on board of it quickly to get some practical advice, like I've said, um, but to understand that it's going to take a lot of time. Um, and, uh, and of course, both of us are more than happy to, to discuss further and, and to come out and see anybody to, you know, to help them start to think. And I think that's worth it from a third party point of view, because one of the, the struggles we've had is we know the data almost so intimately, you forget about exactly what's stored. But having someone new come in can ask all the questions and is able to uh, either have a better understanding about how these things fit together, or just be able to collect it in a way that internally, you just don't see that data. You go, oh, I just store on that hard drive yeah, over there. That's, that's fine. That's Absolutely. off the network. But I'd imagine that's still, that's still part mm. of it as well. So. And tailor the advice to you mm. because you would have that time and that kind of intimacy to understand the way that that business works to help them understand, well, this is what you can do as opposed to kind of discussing generically. The seminar's great. You know, they really do raise awareness, but it's not specific for that organisation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's key. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Awareness is one thing. Yeah. Actionable steps to mitigate your risks mm. are what the ICO will look for. If you don't and are unable to demonstrate that, then you will have an issue mm. in the event of a breach, which is when, not if. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Um, thanks very much for your time. I know you've got a workshop coming up at two o'clock, which I'm, I'm joining yes. you with. So I'll, I'll hopefully ask me some more questions then. Excellent. I uh, hope that goes well. I know you've got another one in December. So people should be hearing this in a couple of weeks time. It should be up and um, do come along to that. If not, just contact you directly. Yes. I know you can, um, if you want to contact Kidwells, you can get them on kidwellsolicitors.co.uk or you can find them on Twitter, Kidwells Law, I think is your handle. Um, Jeremy, do you have any, any location to contact or should it go via? Put it all through Kidwell's. Okay. That's our strategic relationship. <laughs> Excellent. 
Thank you very much for your time. Do appreciate it. And uh, good luck with the workshop today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening. If you're not already subscribed to our podcast, you can do so by going to ratherinventive.com slash podcast. And you can either listen to it on the site or subscribe from there on Apple Music or Overcast or whatever podcast player you use. You can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Ben Canaird or the company at Rather Inventive. Thanks for listening.